Uh, welcome to A16Z's uh, Bio Clubhouse Room, where we talk about the future of bio and healthcare broadly in what is a loosely structured and hopefully interactive and engaging discussion. Uh, for those of you that may not know me, I'm Jorge Conde. I'm one of the general partners here at A16Z. And with me tonight, I have my colleagues, uh, Julie Yu, Scott Cooper, and Venkat Morcella. And I am thrilled um, uh, to have tonight um, uh, Florian Otto, who's the co-founder and CEO of Cedar. Um, for those folks that don't know Cedar, uh, Cedar is a leading patient engagement and healthcare financial technology platform. And the company's mission is to enhance the overall patient experience and provide better pricing transparency, which Florian, I would tell you, you guys, you know, maybe aim higher, right? That sounds easy. Um, to create pricing transparency in healthcare. <laughs> it sounds easy. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> so just by way of introduction, uh, a couple of things. Uh, Scott Cooper, um, who is a, a newbie to Clubhouse or self-proclaimed newbie, <laughs> yes. which I don't, I don't believe for a second. Um, uh, Scott also is uh, one of the uh, general partners who leads up our, uh, in, our, our growth fund investments and recently led our investment in Cedar and currently sits on the board of, of, of the company. Um, and then to introduce Florian, uh, just a bit about you. Um, before starting Cedar, uh, Florian was trained as a physician, worked as a strategy consultant at McKinsey, was an executive at ZocDoc, uh, and founded a daily deal company in Brazil, which was eventually acquired by Groupon. Um, so I want to get into that, into your backstory, because it sounds pretty fascinating. Um, and before we do, I just want to throw out a quick note um, for the for the room here that this conversation is being recorded. Uh, for those of you who are interested in coming up to chat or ask questions by doing so, please note that you're consenting to us using your words and image in a recording relevant, related to this event. So just to get started, Florian, I, I gave a little bit of your background. Um, you've got an impressive, an, an impressive background. You've got several degrees. You have an MD. You have a PhD. Um, you could have, you know, chosen to work in a variety of areas um, in, anywhere, but in healthcare specifically, there are so many different areas to focus on. Um, and you know, given the fact that you've been a practicing physician, a researcher, um, you decided to go into entrepreneurship. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey. And within that context, I'd love to hear uh, a bit about, you know, how Cedar came to be, how you decided to tackle something as tricky and complex as, you know, uh, pricing transparency in the healthcare system. Yes, sure. I'm very happy to, to talk a bit about this. Um, I think as most of you can hear probably from my accent, not from New York originally, but from Germany. Um, I studied medicine and dentistry, was a maxillofacial surgeon for some time, did my PhD, so as you mentioned, uh, was a very um, academic career, and then um, joined actually McKinsey um, and worked in healthcare consulting. And um, your question, okay, what, what made me go from uh, being a doctor to going into business or then in entrepreneurship? I think it's, it's a few things. So the first is, um, as a surgeon, if you really want to be good at something, you need to be extremely repetitive and always do the same surgery again and again and again. And that, of course, can become at some point boring. And then the second big piece is that it's not really scalable. So if you want to have more impact, what can you do? You can work faster, you can work a little bit longer, you can work maybe a little bit better. But all of those are kind of the yeah the 30% increase in productivity. But you somehow are limited uh, to the two hands that you have. And that, that really attracted me on business. 
And um, so I joined McKinsey just literally as a, I, I would call it a paid MBA at a pretty, pretty late start in my real career. So I joined McKinsey when I was 29, which was pretty late and was there for two years. And then, yeah, I started this company in Brazil. Klubo Bana was the name, um, same business model as Groupon. And then Groupon bought the company. I was CEO of Groupon Brazil um, and then worked there oh, for wow. three years. Um, how did you end up yeah. in Brazil, by the way? How does how does a German surgeon turned McKinsey consultant end up in Brazil? <laughs> Good question. Actually, before already. So during my studies, um, when I was um, uh, in medical school, I did uh, social work in um, uh, in in hospitals in Brazil. So public hospitals that were kind of pretty rural. Um, I spent, I think five summers there so always two or three months did backpacking through brazil learned the language and yeah fell in love with the country and the people there and then always wanted to live there for some time and that was kind of a good good setup to uh yeah that, that mckinsey gave me the opportunity to change offices very cool and the groupon idea did you come across that or did you how did that come together yeah, let's let, let's be uh, transparent. That was not the idea, of course, right? That was literally <laughs> Groupon's idea, localized, right? It's, um, it was during that during that time, Groupon was the hot business model. You might remember that 2010, beginning of 2010. And the interesting piece on on Groupon was, um, it's one of those business models that, in my opinion, made sense kind of almost anywhere, especially in Brazil. And secondly, was one of those business model where the U.S. company, so the original, is not going to automatically dominate the world because it's a very um, local business. In the end, what really is not a product, it's not the network effects, it's just who gets the best deals. So that attracted me on that. So I thought we have we somehow have a competitive advantage of building something um, in Brazil that has at least the same business model. Got it. Okay, great. And so then, uh, post uh, Groupon acquisition, you're the you're the CEO of Groupon Brazil for a while, and and then I assume at some point you thought uh, about rolling off of that and and coming into uh, uh, the U.S. Correct, exactly. And that was um, I came to the U.S. to work for Zocdoc. Um, initial idea for Zocdoc was actually um, to be based in uh, in Brazil and build up uh, Zocdoc International. So starting Latin America and then Europe because of my background in Europe and I lived in uh, in Latin America. But then we decided pretty quickly that it doesn't make really sense to go international. And then they invited me to move to New York, became their head of sales. So I was VP of sales and um, did that for three and a half years until until end of 2015. And that's when I left and, uh, and early 2016 started Cedar. Hey, hey, Florian, it's uh, it's Scott. And what so if you if you kind of think about that time period, what what was the original idea behind Cedar? And, and you know, did it have anything to do with your experience at ZocDoc or even, uh, you know, the time you spent uh, as a practicing physician? Like what what kind of made you think, number one, this was an important problem? And, you know, what made you identify this as something that you want to go spend the next, you know, 10 plus years of your life on? Yeah, that, I think that's that's a very good question because it's of course it's it's not that you just just wake up and all of a sudden say okay I want to spend my next ten years on this problem because it's so important it's so big that's usually not the case but so I'm deeply passionate about healthcare so I always somehow what what I was doing was based around healthcare 
And then uh, came um, a pretty personal experience where my wife had a really bad billing experience in New York. So she fainted on the street, needed to go to the emergency room. Um, we swiped credit card for the co-payment, thought everything was done. And then a month later, she got um, an invoice from the uh, health system, literally a stack of paper. Everything was in caps letters. Everything was in, um, in strange codes. And it was really difficult for her to pay. And then another month later, she got the next invoice from the imaging center. And then a debt collector called her for the bill for the laboratory company that she never received. So extremely bad um, um, experience. And she told me, um, never take me back to that hospital because she lost the trust in this healthcare system. And it makes actually total sense, right? Because, um, I mean, trust is somehow consistency over time. And there was clearly a great medical experience, but it was an awful administrative experience. So the problem was there. Right now comes, of course, the question that you're asking yourself when you start a company. Um, is that a big problem? Why right now? Why hasn't it been solved before? Why do I think I'm really passionate and the best person to tackle that and so on? So um, going literally one by one. So the reason... Um, uh, what do you do after you encounter this problem? Is it a singular problem or is it a big problem? So if you just open up Yelp or Google reviews, you see um, almost everybody writes, I love the doctor and hate the administrative experience or the billing. It's always the same. So Yelp and Google reviews somehow show there's a big burden for the patient. So experience problem. Comes the second thing that um, what we found out that in the US they're around um, 50 million people with a bad credit score because of medical debt, and half of them have otherwise a clean credit score, and that median outstanding balance is 250 bucks. So if you have 250 bucks outstanding balance and a clean credit score, this is not ability to pay. So it's not the ability to pay, but there's still a financial problem for them. It's definitely not the willingness to pay is the issue, because in general, I believe in the good of the people. Everybody wants to pay their bill, or most of the people. Nobody runs out of the restaurant without paying, right? So strongly believe that for the patient, it's a huge experience problem. And then comes the question, why is that the case? And I think there's this, this, this very interesting saying, which, which is, your best experience anywhere becomes your expectation everywhere. And... If you can, for example, just rail, uh, just just hail your ride with a, a press of the button, or you can have a personalized experience with your Netflix suggestion queue, or one click to pay on Amazon, or book your flight on uh, on kayak with two clicks. Um, that is your expectation as a consumer, and this expectation is not met in the healthcare system. So, long story short. The consumer problem was pretty clear on what is the issue. And just ask around, right? You always, when you have three people in the room, one person usually had a problem in this payment. Um, and then hey, comes can, the, I, yeah. can I ask you a question on that? If I could, Florian? please. Sorry. Um, two questions if I, on that one. Number one is, okay, so you've been in, you've lived in Europe and worked in Europe and, and in Brazil um, and now in the US. Is this a uniquely American problem? Um, and if it is, do we have a sense of what the cause of this disease is? Yeah, a very good question. So, um, how we so the problem that my wife had, I would say, is a pretty unique American problem. Uh, and what is the problem? You're going to the healthcare provider. You have no idea how much it will cost, and you're getting three different bills for the same visit. 
that is very clearly an American problem. Why is that? Because you have these very high out-of-pocket payments, and there are three components, right? The co-payment, the deductible, and the co-insurance. And then the second problem, why do you get so many different bills, is because you have subcontractor in these hospitals. You have the hospital might bill as a facility, the physicians might bill you, then you have one of the lab companies providing service to the provider, you might have an imaging center that builds differently and so on. So all of those things are, I would say, pretty unique to the American problem. And maybe the last uh, last answer to, to, to your question is, why do we have that? Um, and that was, I think, since the 50s or something, it slowly literally started the, um, the, 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 the shift that healthcare basically needs to be paid by the employers. Everything was totally fine in the 60s, 70s, 80s, because the economy was doing extremely well. But then healthcare grew at a faster pace than GDP. And you know this, right? I mean, GDP grows at between 2 and 3%, and healthcare probably between 5 and 7%. And if healthcare is linked to the employers, at some point, they need to shift the burden to the employees because they cannot pay the healthcare expenses anymore. So what happened then, I would say probably around 20 years ago, meaningful out-of-pocket payments from the, from the patients, so high-deductible healthcare plans. And these high-deductible healthcare plans grew in quantity. I don't know the latest statistics, but it's probably 40 to 50% of the healthcare plans are considered high-deductible. And the deductible per high-deductible plan went up from, I think it was something like 400 bucks around 10 years ago to right now around $2,500. So a huge um, patient liability um, is what almost everybody say uh, everybody is facing. And like my wife, for example, she works in finance and has a pretty decent plan, but still she was facing that problem. Hey, Florian, going back to your ZocDoc days, um, I'm curious if you had thought about building this as a either a product or even a feature at ZocDoc, because, you know, as we know, building sales channel in the healthcare space is super hard. And, you know, ZocDoc had a very nice book of business. Um, you and I used to compete in the market. So I know uh, <laughs> you, you guys had some good logos on the enterprise side. Um, you know, what made you, what, what made you take the leap to, to build this as a separate business versus just doing it on the platform that you were already a part of at ZocDoc? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. It really depends on how much synergy do you have um, and, um, and how much, how much dissynergy I would say you have building at, uh, at just as a separate business. So maybe on, let's look on the technology side and then on the go-to-market side. On the technology side, it has literally zero to do with ZocDoc. Why is that? Um, integration with the healthcare systems are pretty difficult. However, ZocDoc is integrating with a different part of the, um, of the EMR companies. It's more the practice management system, so the PMS system. And if you really want to do the billing, it's a different part of these uh, of these systems where you need to integrate with. So the integration that StockDoc built actually doesn't help you very much with that. Um, all of the the, the 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 personalization, what we really do on the spilling piece, is also something that that StockDoc is not really doing. So there's not much synergy, I would say, on the product side. And besides all of that. I think ZocDoc's business, I don't know it right now, but by the time I left, it was probably something like three quarters was still the SMB, so literally small practices, and just 25% was um, large healthcare systems. Um, and then, of course, the second question is on the go-to-market side. Go-to-market side, it depends on whom in the healthcare system are you selling into. So 
um, all the billing usually sits under the head of revenue cycle. Head of revenue cycle um, reports to the CFO and CFO usually into the president or CEO. ZogDoc very often sold into the CMIO or CIO, so the different part of the organization. So just looking go to market and on the product side, I didn't think that there was so much synergy so that I think it's much faster literally to build a company from scratch than building it as a part of a large entity. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, Florian, you, uh, you, you alluded to this a little bit in the last question, but maybe you can dig in some more, which is why, why is this, why is this, why is this problem so hard and like, why hasn't it been solved before? So, I mean, why isn't it fairly simple for me, you know, me to be able to go to the doctor you know, have a treatment and understand, you know, kind of for somebody to actually aggregate all the various experiences I have and present me with a bill that actually makes sense and that is digestible. Like what, what, what is, what is so hard about this problem and why, you know, in 2021, are we still talking about this as opposed to this having been solved a long time ago? Yeah. I'm going to pour myself a glass of whiskey as you answer that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> make, make sure it's a large one. Yeah. So, uh, so, so the problem is, I mean, is th there are thousands of problems because, and that's the reason, of course, why it hasn't been solved. So let's talk about a few structural problems. I think the first is the structural problem that you literally have so many different codes and billing entities and so many different health insurance plans and um, don't know where you're in your deductible when you go to a doctor, that you usually don't know how much something costs before the visit. Because if you know it before the visit, then it's very easy. You just go there, the doctor will tell you, okay, a hundred bucks, and then you are out. That's, let's say, the, the, the closest you can get to that is probably the dentist. If you go to the dentist, the dentist has literally maybe 50 coats or something, and that's it. They have a filling, they have a root canal, they have an implant, they have a veneer, they have a crown, and so on. And that's basically it. So it's pretty easy. It's extremely difficult um, when, it is, when it comes to the medical side. Then the second question is, um, these, um, in order to determine the out-of-pocket payment, is usually the entire process needs to go through the adjudication process. So that means basically that your claims need to be sent to the insurance company. The insurance company takes a few weeks, two or three weeks, sends it back to the provider, and then only tells the provider how much to bill. So that, of course, is a big problem because there's a time lag of around a month or so when you get your first bill. So these are all, I would say, structural problems. And then, of course, we all know that every single um, insurance pays a different rate. And how much you owe from each of these different business entities depends also where you're in your deductible. And it might be that you hit your deductible already before at one entity, so the other entity doesn't need to bill you. So there are a lot of structural problems that makes this very complicated. So there are also, I would say, technology problems. Um, so the question, why cannot you just aggregate these bills? And maybe let's, do, maybe let's ask the answer just a little bit easier. Why cannot you just display the bill in a normal, understandable way? I think that is, uh, that, that is a question that has more to do with the IT infrastructure of these healthcare systems. So... Um, healthcare systems um, have have these these big EMR these big EMRs, which are on-premise electronic medical records ERP systems, basically. So compare it maybe to the travel industry Sabre or Amadeus. Those are written still in COBOL or MUMS, so very odd programming languages. Um, on-premise, they update once every eighteen months. Huge infrastructure. 
They, of course, are not made for patient billing. Because if you want to really understand the consumer from a technology perspective, you need to be agile and you need to be able to iterate. You need to be able to test. You need to be able to run experiment. You need to be able to probably update your software a couple of times a day and not once every 18 months. So that means basically that all of those companies have an extremely tough time to get into this space. So um, on the other side, those companies also doesn't, don't make it extremely easy for other vendors to integrate, pull out that data, and then manipulate it and engage with the patient because everyone wants to claim their territory. So they're not necessarily easy to interface with. So while some of those officially have an API where you can, we, you can pull the data and you can push the data back, most of those APIs either don't really work for billing purposes or you literally just need to go back to an SFTP model where you do literally just a file transfer a couple of times a day. So that's, that's I think, on the technological problem. And then it becomes the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial problem on why it hasn't been solved. So the first is nobody really knew how big the problem was. I mean, I worked pretty close in this space. I knew, I, I know healthcare. And as Julie mentioned, I worked at ZocDoc. I wasn't aware of the magnitude of the problem, how many people are affected by that, that we're talking about $150 billion being paid from patients to health, to, to doctors and $200 billion being not paid. <laughs> so just going literally into bad debt. Um, and then um, healthcare has two more very, very difficult, uh, I think, difficult uh, attributes that literally scares away a lot of entrepreneurs. First is the regulatory environment. Um, there are a lot of regulations. And I mean, our business, for example, HIPAA, of course, is one. We need to be PCI compliant. We need to comply um, with a TCPA, which is Telecom Consumer Protection Act. Um, there's a lot of regulatory things that we need to comply with. Um, and, then this, uh, and then the last piece is um, enterprise sales into healthcare systems is extremely painful. I mean, enterprise sales is always painful, always takes very, very long. And is a very, very um, yeah difficult way to do, to do business and to scale a business, especially when it goes into healthcare systems. So all of those attributes, I think, scare a lot of companies away to try to solve this problem. And Florian, to you, first of all, this is like PTSD for me. So thank you for explaining in very um, detailed <laughs> terms what the dynamics are here. But um, like to your point on the EHRs, I mean, that's if we had a dollar for every time, you know, you and I both heard that, hey, can't we do this in Epic? Or, you know, how does this, how is this better than what Epic does? We'd be uh, rich and, and retired by now. Um, but what, what, what's been, you know, what has changed? Because I, I do think, and obviously with your success recently, like the dynamic is changing. Um, do you think that's been largely driven by consumer demand or is it the regulation or is it that people finally are past, you know, the dust has settled on the EHR implementations such that people see the shortcomings of the existing solutions or is, you know, all of the above? What, what's been kind of your on the ground experience that has led to more of an appetite around um, best of breed solutions for this area? Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of points. Um, so, so first and foremost, of course, most most of these things are consumer driven, right? And and Cedar is a typical B two B two C model. So that means the end user, of course, is the um, is the patient or the consumer, but um, the buyer is the healthcare system. So why does right now the healthcare system contract with Cedar? The first is, of course, they have seen the results that the patients have 
um, and, and, and how happy patients are using CDAT other health systems. That, of course, helps a lot. Second, as you um, uh, alluded also on, they see the shortfalls of these EMRs. EMRs are really good uh, infrastructure um, software. They're really fine of doing all the medical parts, doing clinical workflows, doing the coding, maybe even doing the insurance clearance. They're all fine on that, but they are not good on the patient engagement. They will never really get to because yeah, they they just have this problem of being on premise and not being able to to personalize any of this. Um, and then, of course, I think comes also right now um, the, uh, I would say, definitely the last year, although COVID has been been really a disaster and, and of course, terrible for, um, for, for the entire country and for the entire world. But healthcare systems have really seen that they have to adjust right now and that they have to innovate and they have to get the consumer where they are. And back to this thing on trust is consistency over time. Um, if you have a fantastic medical experience, you have a fantastic reputation, and you always did in the past your, your advertisement, best doctors in the country, best doctors in the world, and so on, and then you land in collections and nobody understands the bill, you lose trust in the healthcare system, right? I mean, it's the same. Imagine right now you go to, to the most um, nice hotel, the room is clean, staff is super friendly, it's amazing design. And then at checkout, you get a wrong bill. You need to wait 20 minutes or so to pay for the hotel. You probably hate the hotel. It's not that you say, this hotel is amazing, but the checkout is bad. You probably said the entire hotel is bad. And that's the same what right now the consumers will say um, about their healthcare system if the billing is really bad. And now more than ever, consumers have the choice to go wherever they want to. And that really opens the eyes, I think, for the healthcare systems to move. So given that you have all, I mean, you make a very compelling argument that you have a lot of tailwinds um, in terms of, you know, you know, why this is the moment to solve, to fix this problem. Um, you articulate a lot of uh, reasons why we have had, have or had this structural problem in the first place. A cynical question for you uh, would be, who doesn't want this problem to get solved? Are there, are there... <laughs> Is there anyone in, are there players in the healthcare system that actually benefit from the status quo? Or is this just so irreparably broken that if, if you can solve this problem, like you're, you're making all stakeholders happy? <laughs> I mean, there are always some people benefiting or, or making money out of inefficiencies and out of pain, right? So on a macro level, it absolutely is a disaster and there's no reason why it should stay and 100% it will need to um, it will need to change. But of course, right now, I mean, look on how many millions of paper statements or probably in the US billions of paper statements are being sent every single year. So there are a lot of um, a lot of business you may just churning out these paper statements. Um, there are, of course, these early out vendors, early like out the post vendors. Office. Basically yeah exactly post office of course <laughs> makes some money with this and then on the other side also there are um i mean probably hundreds of thousands of people in call centers answering questions of consumers not understanding their bill and very often those companies are outsourced um yeah outsourced third-party providers and then absolutely my favorite are bad debt collection agencies Bad debt collection agencies, they are, of course, making a huge amount of money. And why do they make money? 
because patients land in collections, because they don't understand the bill, they don't receive the bill, they have trouble paying it, they don't know whether it's correct, maybe it's the wrong bill, and they are making a huge amount of money at the expense of the patient. So I would say most of those entities are, of course, suffering from a transparent and consumer-friendly billing experience that is purely technological. Makes sense. But, but I mean, it, would it be fair to argue that the providers, um, the insurers, and the patients all want this problem solved? Like there's not a You're 100% there. right. Yeah. You, you're 100% right. And, and, and if you just go one by one, it's actually very easy to know on, um, on why. So for the consumer, I think it's a total no-brainer. And that's what we see. So around 90% of the patient give us four or five stars out of a five-star rating. It's extremely high, right? I think the net promoter score for, um, uh, for the billing experience used to be lower than visiting the DMV. So extremely low, right? And just bringing that to, to something, something manageable is very, very nice. Um, what is the benefit for the healthcare system? It's actually four things that really matter. It's the patient experience. It's the collection rate. So how many cents on the dollar do they, do they collect? Um, time to collect. So basically the days outstanding. And then of course the cost to collect. And all of those four factors are being um, affected positively by it. And then the insurance company is the very interesting piece on that. So the insurance companies, for them, it's actually also a nightmare. And insurance companies and providers this time are aligned because the average patient cannot really distinguish on what is insurance company and what is provider. And um, the, the insurance company is getting so many inbound phone calls of patients thinking they need to call the provider and providers are getting inbound phone calls from the patients thinking that they need to call the payer, which of course adds a lot of cost and complexity. And then there comes the other piece, which is the out-of-pocket maximum. That is also a very interesting piece because of the following. So imagine right now you have a high-deductible healthcare plan, and let's say your uh, maximum deductible is um, $2,000. If right now the average collection rate all over the US is around 40%, that means basically that in average, the patient only pays around $800, but hits the deductible of $2,000 because the insurance company does not know whether a bill is being paid or not. The insurance company only knows what the provider invoiced to the consumer, but not what the consumer paid. So that's the interesting piece. So you're totally, oh, wow. li totally right, Jorge, that, um, that the patient, the provider, and the payer, all three are benefiting from this. Florian, where do you see, I know we've talked about this before, but um, obviously a big part of the disconnect in the experience here is the literally the disconnect between the payer and the provider, as you just described. Um, but, you know, there's also a ton of promise around, you know, the integration of the payer and the provider motion, and whether it's within a single company or, you know, a lot of what's happening, obviously, around value-based care and, and more um, sort of direct contracting along those lines. Um, what, what, do you, what do you see there and, you know, how, how do you see that dynamic impacting some of what we're talking about here? Um, and, you know, where does theater play a role with regards to the intersection between payer and provider? Yeah, that's, that's of course, um, extremely important. And, I mean, we have seen in the past, of course, some providers going to the payer business, the payers going into the provider business. 
Um, interestingly, there are very few entities really succeeding in this because it's very different businesses. Um, so I don't see really um, this completely taking off. What I think is is extremely important that payers and provider get more aligned. So right now, it seems very often that, yeah, I mean, start with something like a prior authorization where um, the, the, the provider really needs to go through so many steps in order to get a, a treatment authorized for the patient. It's terrible for the provider, terrible for the patient, even for the payer, it's not that nice. All of those things need to get somehow aligned. Then on the adjudication process, right now it literally takes two or three weeks at least to get the adjudication done of the claim. Um, that is something that should not happen because all of those things should be automated. How much something is out of pocket, there's no reason. I mean, we are doing experiments right now um, on um, where we can uh, predict on how much a certain procedure will be out of pocket. And we are getting pretty close on what it will be. So it's absolutely possible to tell the patients before um, what something cost. Not for every single visit, but we, for us right now, it's for 85% of the visits or the procedures or the episodes of care. It's possible um, to tell the patient on how much something will be. For the remaining 15%, we are not able to do it right now. It might be a little bit tough, but you know what? If we can fix 85% of, uh, of the transparency issues, we absolutely take it. So I think payer and provider together, they have a huge chance to streamline all of these communications and also take it to um, the pre-visit experience. So long-winded answer to your question, where does CEDA play a role um, is of course on all this connection. So that means basically for, for CEDA on the communication, the chat, for example, should go to the payer and to the provider. So if you have a problem and, the, uh, and you're chatting with a provider, the provider should be able to add the payer as well. That might be a great consumer experience. And the price transparency. How can the patient know before the visit how much something will cost? That's something where CEDA, of course, also can help. Hey, hey Florian, uh, uh, at the risk of going into politics, uh, let's talk politics for a second, or policy maybe is a better better way to do it. So, um, <laughs> you know, as you know, obviously there's been, you know, certainly lots of kind of discussion around price transparency, of course, coming from the political level, Always, of course, a, you know, a topic and, you know, particularly so now with the new administration about expanding access to healthcare more generally. What are when you when you look at kind of what you're doing, you know, is policy or politics like a headwind or a tailwind for how you think about your business? Like in the what, what would be the most ideal scenario for you in terms of policy changes that would be, you know, could significantly, you know, give you a big boost in terms of the, the customers and the payers and providers, obviously, that you're talking to today? Yeah, um, I, I think, I mean, um, uh, given what is, of course, feasible and, and, and very frankly, on, on all of the, the, the policy changes or, um, or, or healthcare system changes, I first think literally about the patients and then secondly about our business because we started the business to help patients. And the most important thing is literally that, that the suffering from the patient. We want patients to, to focus on getting healthy and not needing to worry about anything else. But what, what are things that, that, that literally right now, I would say have, have, have bipartisan support and can be interesting, I think for the patient and also for the business. I think surprise billing is one thing and probably the Price Transparency Act is the second one. Um, 
why do I think they are such no-brainers? So the first is, um, I mean, the price transparency. I think everybody is helped, maybe besides some of the uh, some of the large insurance companies, which I think is fine, um, that the patient has transparency on how much something costs. Right now comes the problem on that. What, so what is the fundamental problem on the on the bill? Um, the shoppable experience is just publishing 300 um, of the rates um, on the uh, on the hospital website. It's not very digestible for the patients. So the the implementation of that is not really done and done well. But I think the policy makes actually total sense. I think it's very good that that hospitals and uh, and and uh, and payers need to publish their prices. There's one, and and I would say an um, a very counterintuitive thing that I have the feeling that in healthcare, if you fix prices, you almost increase competition. Why is that? Because if you don't fix prices, the payers are getting bigger and getting more bargaining power. And the healthcare systems need to get bigger and getting more bargaining power in order to claim higher prices, right? And it's very tough for a smaller company like, I don't know, a health insurance startup or a new provider to really enter this space because they don't have bargaining power. If you fix the prices, and for example, Germany is a country where you have the price fixed, all of a sudden, the healthcare providers are not competing for price, but they are competing for quality and for service. So it's actually really interesting. But that's that's maybe a discussion for another <laughs> clubhouse on that. Um, so price transparency, I think, is extremely interesting. Um, the second piece is, I think, this, this surprise billing um, surprise bidding initiatives. No real interesting thing has been made. So surprise billing, just maybe for the for the audience who's not not aware of that, is you're going to um, to a doctor in network, and then there's a sub provider that is not in network very often, anesthesiologist or emergency room service provider that is out of network, and you're getting a huge bill. Happened to me actually um, two months ago. I got my annual physical in network provider um, so of course didn't pay anything because it was annual physical and then got a 650 dollar lab bill and apparently the lab was out of pocket I had, n- I had no idea that the physician was sending it to that lab and i didn't know that lab, lab was out of uh, out of network so extremely bad experience so those are things where cedar actually can help a lot because cedar can find out where a bill will come from and see the kind of work with these out-of-network providers to discount these bills to a normal level. Because if something is out-of-network like this, these, these standard labs, uh, $650 is, of course, a completely absurd amount. And it's probably somehow the rack rate, the charge master or something. It's not a normal rate that I pay. If it was a normal rate, let's call it maybe 100 bucks or something for a normal, um, um, for a normal blood um, exam, I would have paid it. The $650, there's no chance I'm going to pay it. It's like the uh, the out of network charges are like the um, roaming charges from the early days of like cell phone plans. <laughs> you know what? Uh, it's actually very very interesting that you bring it up, and I strongly believe it's a very interesting analogy. Um, cell phones when they switched from uh, from you pay per per minute towards a flat rate, what happened? Consumers got happier because all of a sudden they have transparency and they can plan their expenses, but average payment per consumer went up that's the interesting piece so your average bill went up but satisfaction went up so it's actually great for the carriers 
and it's great for the consumers. And that is something that, that I think healthcare providers need to understand at some point as well, where why can't you have something like a subscription price model where you plan exactly the price and give you for a certain episode of care um, just a flat rate? It's the same what happened to Uber or, Air, or, 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 or Lyft when they switched from you pay per mile and per minute, which just doesn't really help you much, right? Because you have never any idea on how much the trip cost towards a price guarantee. When you get the price guarantee, conversion rate went through the roof, right? And I think that's what we need to get as well in healthcare. That makes a lot of sense. Do we have a Cedar membership uh, product on the horizon that we should look forward to, Florian? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We are we are working on that. So so we launched our previsit product um, already. Uh, when was that? Two months ago, um, and have very exciting um, early um, um, so so early results on that. But of course, the next level is um, is really to have besides a great check in experience for the patients to have this price transparency and planning the prices. That's 100% uh, where we want to get to. Great. I think we're going to start bringing some folks up here um, to join to join this conversation. But maybe one as, as we're bringing folks up, Florian, um, I know you've you've uh, written publicly about uh, sort of your product roadmap and the fact that you've expanded, you know, you started with payments, um, and obviously have a great solution there. But saw the broader opportunity across the patient experience surface area. Um, what what was kind of the key insight that led you down that path, especially, especially given that you know the patient experience landscape is extremely crowded. There's been you know a ton of, of startups and companies, and you know same same sort of electronic health record system dynamic there, where there's probably a lot that EHRs claim to do, but um, perhaps have failed uh, to deliver on. Um, you know what what kind of what was the key insight there that led you to expand the surface area of how you're thinking about the product platform? Yeah, so, so we literally always go patient first. So so we started with this post-visit billing experience. So it means after the visit, you're getting the bill and um, uh, it, we make it easy, more transparent and personalized to uh, to pay the bill. So what we then saw um, that actually uh, the patients have other problems besides just paying the bill. So for example, their claims get denied because um, they um, because their insurance information lapsed. So we built this um, this insurance capture function where you can just take a picture of the insurance card and then with OCR technologies, resubmit the claim. Or for example, we see that a lot of claims just get denied because for example, um, I don't know, you have a whiplash for an, uh, for, for an accident um, and then you forgot to put in your car insurance information. We are messaging the patient that or charity care application forms is uh, what we are doing on, um, on the post visit side. So all of these workflows basically help the patient resolve their problem and paying the bill is one of the problems. And then the second level came basically from, okay, if they have the problem and we resolve this problem after the visit, why not going before the visit? So we got, went literally to this end-to-end -end experience with a full CDS suite. Amazing. Awesome. All right, so I think, uh, Venkit, do you want to um, introduce some of the folks that you've brought up here and we can continue the conversation here with Florian? Yeah, this has been an amazing conversation, Florian. Um, as you can imagine, the world of healthcare is small, so I imagine a lot of these faces are very familiar to you, but uh, it's super exciting. We also have uh, a couple new folks to Clubhouse itself. So, um, Neam, who it, 
new job, new to Clubhouse, lots of new things in Niam's life. You know Niam pretty well. Um, Niam, you just want to introduce yourself, uh, thoughts, comments, questions for this conversation? Welcome, Niam. Hey, Florian. Uh, great, great conversation so far. Thank you for uh, for having me join. And for, for those who don't know me, uh, I recently left uh, Mount Sinai, where I was the chief population health officer and chief financial officer there. Um, and I'm starting next week as the CFO at Mass General Brigham up in Boston. Congrats. Great. Exciting. Congrats, Niam. Yeah, Niam. Uh, Niam is one of the one of, one of the 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 early adopters who just literally loves technology, loves the consumer, and is not is not afraid of um, of speaking up if, if something is broken. So again and again, Niam and I were were sitting down and saying, okay, what is what, what is literally right now the problem here? And um, he is not afraid at all of speaking this up. So healthcare needs more of Niams. So um, as, you know, Niam, I'm going to come back to you with, uh, you know, your comments, thoughts, questions on this conversation. But I just actually want to introduce the room real quick, actually. Um, so just going around, we talked about payer provider dynamics. And what's awesome is we have both payers and providers. Um, so Bill Georges is the chief strategy officer at Horizon Blue. Uh, hey, Bill, want to just introduce yourself and say hello? Hi, um Thanks, Van Ken and Florian. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, really great presentation so far. Uh, yeah, as Van Ken mentioned, I'm the um, the chief strategy officer at Horizon, and also have responsibility for uh, much of the innovation work that we're doing. And we know Florian and Cedar well, and um, I agree with uh, probably 110 percent of what Florian is saying about how we need to make things easier for the consumer uh, and bridge the ecosystem between payer and provider. So. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'll, I'll leave it at that and uh, and look forward to the rest of the convo. Uh, we also, in the same state, we have uh, Dr. Turin Kapoor from Virtua. Um, we have, I'll, I'll go I'll go real quick. I'll sort of announce the names and then we can come back to, I know, I know Tarun and Niam and a couple others, Bill, have thoughts and comments. Um, Sam Glick, who leads the healthcare practice at Oliver Weinman, who's a, I, I think now, Sam, you're a clubhouse pro, um, you know, since you don't have the hat on. I, I've been in Clubhouse for like three quarters of its, its existence. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, we have uh, Becky Harrington, who, uh, Florida, you also know is the president of the Leadership Institute. Um, Becky, you want to just say hello real quick? Uh, hi, and Florian, uh, we were delighted that you could join us in D.C. in November for our in-person roundtable of, of our our members, uh, for those of you who don't know the Leadership Institute, we're a membership organization made up of CEOs and their teams from 65 of the leading health systems around the country. It was uh, an unforgettable event uh, during the election week. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then we have uh, Kevin Smith, also first time on Clubhouse, who's the CFO of Luminous Health. Hey, Florian. Good to hear your voice. You know, I'm always catching up with your team to discuss how we can, you know, better make the uh, patient experience uh, just just that better. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. You can come in and get great services from the clinical portion and then all of a sudden have a bad billing experience. And so the entire experience is just kind of shot. So, you know, greatly appreciate that you've implemented something that uh, that closes the entire the entire network. So great uh, talking to you again, Kevin. Maybe just to kick it off, um, Tarun, I know you've got some thoughts, comments. We were chatting 
um, offline about this. I'll let you kick it off and then we can take it organically around the room here. Well, the first part would be able to get myself off of mute. So apologies for that one. Uh, no, uh, Florian Tarun Kapoor, uh, I'm the Chief Digital Transformation Officer over at Virtua. So uh, thanks so much for your discussion point. Uh, you know, it, um, it, it, I actually had a flashback to, uh, I had to have a, a medical procedure a number of years ago and I, you know, I'm crying a lot, I'm in the system, right? And trying to navigate this. And I got a bill for, I think like, you know, $200 for a single lab test. And it's like, well, why didn't, wasn't this covered? And it's like, oh, we sent the wrong diagnosis code. And okay, so what can you send a new the diagnosis code? They sent the new diagnosis code. My, four, my payment was $4. I was like, how is that possible? <laughs> how do you go from 200 to $4? So, um, you know, exactly, right? These, these are the pain points. You know, one, an interesting, you know, piece that I was talking over with Venkat was, you know, it, not, o- not only is there a payment uh, transparency issue here, and you guys are working to solve that, but are you running to issues? Do you have providers coming to you and say, hey, listen, have you ever considered fronting the AR at a discount? You know, does the cash flow comp- uh, you know, considerations now with the pressures on health systems, is that something that you guys have thought through or have been asked about by, uh, by, by providers? Yeah, it's it's actually interesting. So so when we started the company, we thought that that could be a big thing. Um, we uh, for a few reasons we don't think that this is the biggest lever for the for the following reasons. So the first is just look on okay, what is the cost of capital for a not for profit, extremely stable healthcare institution? Uh, the current interest rate probably zero percent, right? Um, a startup cannot compete with that, um, even if we use a third party to finance the AR. Um, so we don't really think that that the financing itself, which is a complete commodity, really is the big differentiator. We strongly believe what is the differentiator is administrating all of these um, uh, these payment plans. So engaging with the patients, updating credit cards, reaching out to them, um, doing all the um, writing, all of those um, those payment plans back into the EHR system, that is the real difficult part, and that's what we are doing. But we are not taking the collection risk on that. We would be open to that if right now really there's a clear business case to make. But very often for the healthcare systems, they have, for them it's actually much cheaper to just if they need cash, they can just borrow it somewhere. They can issue bonds. Uh, and for a lower interest rate than factoring um, to to literally get these receivables. Um, it's what's amazing about Clubhouse is I realized the organic connections that exist. So, um, Neem is actually an uh, Oliver Ryman alum, and Sam and uh, Neem have like a mini OW reunion happening right now in the real time. So maybe on that note, I'll pivot to Sam here. Um, Sam, you have a perspective that you know working with both payers and providers, as you look at the sort of experience from a, a, a different perspective, curious your comments, thoughts, questions on this conversation. Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm, I was excited to hear what Florian had to say, and I think we're very much moving in the right direction here. I think there's, you know, a few things kind of struck me. So much of the conversation about transparency is focused on price. And what we see, um, even among actually quite well-educated consumers, much less 
the average consumer is that um, healthcare consumers actually do not uh, understand the sometimes the inverse correlation between price and quality in healthcare. Sometimes the best place you can go is actually the cheapest place, and you have way too many people who think healthcare is a luxury good. And so one of the challenges I think we have with price transparency is if you just put the price out there for people, um, that what they're going to do is actually assume they want to go the more expensive place, particularly when somebody else is picking up most of the bill. Um, what you what they can shop on though is the quality of the experience, the hours, the convenience to their house, how they feel engaged in their own health, the digital tools that are provided, and all of that. And so I do think there's this kind of interesting tension of, over time, I think we can educate people about what quality care looks like, but what they're really looking for now is a quality experience that makes sense to them, that treats them like a real person, right? Not like a patient who's being managed, um, and that doesn't uh, lead to surprises for them, right? That doesn't feel like they got kicked when they're down. Um, we years ago did some research with people uh, about what their primary frustrations were in healthcare. And one guy said to me in a focus group, he said, I just wish the doctor's office would treat me like the pharmacy. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, my drugs are expensive, but they don't let me leave the pharmacy without paying for it. And I don't get a bill 12 weeks later. <laughs> right. And that really kind of resonated with me that, that what we need to do is not just put the information out there, but actually start engaging with people on the things that matter to them. And that's, I think, what's exciting about where Florian's headed. Um, the other thing that, that struck me is even the way you know, benefits are designed and insurance products are designed is so fundamentally consumer unfriendly. Right? Think about the concept of an annual deductible. Um, right? What other bill do you have as a consumer that you pay annually? And should it really matter if you go to the emergency room in January versus November? Right? And we have all sorts of advances in actuarial science that make it possible to do things like monthly deductibles, to think about building in healthcare financing, to think about co-pays versus co-insurance, where we know there are huge differences in what consumers want. And we have a long way to go to bring that benefit design around. And I think that kind of layers on top, like what, what Florian and Cedar are doing, um, hopefully then start to influence the industry to say we can actually design products that make sense to people. Yeah, that, yeah I mean, that's you know, right. just, that, Go ahead, Liam. You know, I was just going to say, just, just building on Sam's point there, I think it's, I think it's really important there that, you know, that idea of the annual deductible or co-insurance and copay. I mean, fundamentally what we did is we took, we took the artifacts of property and casualty insurance and dumped it on something that, it's not well suited for, right? Health insurance is not really all insurance. A lot of it is, you know, prepayment for, uh, for services that you really need on a regular basis. Um, and I think, you know, Florian, I'm struck by some of the conversations we had early on uh, at the intersection of Mount Sinai and Cedar and, and Oscar. And, uh, you know, we didn't end up uh, going down some of those paths, but kind of connecting the insurance conversation and you know I think Oscar did a great job of simplifying the way they communicate uh, the idea of a deductible uh, as an example marrying that with with a provider that wants to be you know kind of leaning forward on consumer experience and and somebody like Cedar in the middle I mean what, wouldn't it be great if uh, if you're purchasing an individual uh, insurance product from a place like Oscar you know you're they're, they're already billing you monthly what if what if Mount Sinai sent all of their bills to Cedar uh, and, you know, Cedar packaged all of the EOBs from Oscar with all of the bills from Sinai and that just got debited from your account uh, when, when your monthly premium was, was paid and it was all packaged together and explained and everything was reconciled appropriately. And 
could could we could we take a step further and imagine something like that? And um, you know, again, I think that uh, some of the work that uh, that you're doing, Florian, uh, at Cedar could could take us even to that next level of solving the translation gap between the way that providers and insurers talk about healthcare costs, uh, which are both wildly consumer unfriendly, but also different. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think they're, they're also completely um, disaligned incentives, right? So what you, of course, Neem say, is saying makes total sense and, and, and Sam, the interesting piece on these deductibles that they're annual, then of course, we all know what a lot of providers are doing. They're doing this, what's called deductible hold. They're basically waiting to send the invoice in the hope that other providers will send the, um, the, the claim first to the insurance company that the out-of-pocket out maximum is hit so that 100% is being paid by insurance. And that, of course, is terrible for the consumer in terms of experience because it just takes much longer for them to get the bill. Let me, let me get to Bill. Uh, Bill, you know, would love your perspective because part of the beauty of healthcare is you get the provider folks can get to blame it on the payer side, the payer side get to blame it on the provider. So it's great <laughs> to have everybody here at one, one clubhouse room, if you will. The room we're Yeah. Thanks, Venka. Yeah, and I, I just I actually wanted to to uh, tie together a, a comment that Neam and and Taryn made, which are really really interesting to me. So first of all, from a, um, I don't know if my actuary is going to shoot me in the morning. Uh, although I don't think he's hip enough to be on on Clubhouse, so he's not going to know I'm going to say this. But um, um, I think benefit design artifacts. I don't think they any longer hold much actuarial significance. At least the smaller part of the equation so the maximum out of pocket so when you get to the when you get to the caps those matter but i'm not so sure that um co-pays and co-insurance matter as much as they used to um for a lot of reasons i mostly because i don't really think that they track they have tracked with inflation and costs over time so five dollars at one point was was meant to be a disincentive um and I just I don't think it functions that way anymore. And the same thing with the concept of deductibles, because it's not something that uh, clearly registers in the mind of a consumer. It can't really impact consumer behavior in the way that actuaries, in my view, fantasize that it does. So I um, I would I would vote with Neam and perhaps others that we could pretty much eliminate many of those uh, actuarial artifacts. Um, but one thing I wanted to key into, and I'd be curious what Florian thinks about this. So, um, Neam, you made the point that there's a lot in health insurance that isn't insurance. And insurance, strictly speaking, is, you know, is, is a financial protection against an unknown risk. But much of healthcare is known, regular periodic payments. I mean, think about a, a diabetic. Once somebody is a diabetic, you could probably map out with fair degree of accuracy how much that individual will spend over the course of a lifetime. So, Florian, I wonder, any thoughts about how we could bifurcate that um, and, and address that macro level societally, right? Because these fixed periodic payments should be cut out of an insurance pool. And then that would change the insurance payment dynamics because it would be removed from the premium calculation. Um, so I, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. And one other thing, if I could just throw back uh, towards you, Florian. So the same, the same way in um, a credit card guarantees that a, um, 
a vendor will be paid, let's say for a, a television, flat screen TV, even if it's a fraudulent transaction, can't we find a way to use that financial intermediary to smooth payments to providers like Taryn? So two separate questions, but I think that they're linked. So I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, very, uh, very, very good comments, and uh, and I think there's a lot to discuss in 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 your contribution here. So I think maybe the first on what really is insurance and what should be insured. So I think in insurance overall, right? Um, you mentioned that insurance is somehow um, uh, insurance against a risk you're not aware of. I think it's it's more like literally a risk you cannot bear on your own, right? That's why you need health insurance. And why, in my opinion, my dental insurance is actually not that important. I think it's more actually the reason why dental insurance exists is more maybe because of tax reasons. But that's a, that's a topic for, 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 again, another clubhouse. So I think, I, I, I think the most important thing is to really understand, okay, what, what, what are these catastrophic injuries, diseases that um, a single person cannot bear. And that's what you really need. That's that's where you need insurance for, right? Makes total sense. Nobody who has diabetic does that um, and, and can pay for that, right? If you right now have an injury, you cannot pay for that. And all of those things, of course, need to be pooled by insurance. There are, however, I think a lot of other things where where the power needs to get back to the consumer and the consumer should be incentivized to, yeah, let's call it to to maybe shop to get a better price for the same service. Why not at some point saying, okay, you need an MRI of let's call it your your um, your knee, um, inviting the patient to come at 11 p.m. only for $200 out of pocket instead of $500 if it's on Thursday 5 p.m. Those things could make sense, right? So giving the, the power back, I think, to, to the patient on that. So it really depends on what is planable, what can be transparent, and what is this true catastrophic and where the risk and the financial burden needs to be pooled. Yeah. Although, Florian, if I could just, just jump on that quickly to, to your earlier point. I think sometimes we get in this conversation about, well, health insurance isn't really insurance. That's fine if you want to take away the kind of sort of technical definition of insurance. I thought you made a really good point earlier that Americans love prepaid products, right? They love predictability. And we should just acknowledge that a big chunk of health insurance is a prepaid product, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Totally. Maybe uh, just switching gears to a little bit about, you know, um, there's there's a ton of work on, you know, digital transformation is a very cheesy word, but it's, it's true that the providers are investing and payers a ton in this. And maybe from like a, a health system perspective, um, you know, Maybe we'll start with um, Becky um, Harrington first and then go to Kevin and Rich um, on how this transformation is taking place and how important the consumer experience is and top of mind for CEOs and CFOs, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, Florian, just to pivot more to the fintech ecosystem, uh, it seems like every month or more frequently than that, we get a call from a billing company startup that would like to get in front of our members. And so I'd be curious um, what your key differentiators are. Having said that, just before you met with uh, us in November class, which is known to be the most objective, <clears throat> agnostic, unbiased evaluator, uh, named Cedar as the number one 
um, company in your space. So congratulations on that. And I think you told me you, that came as a surprise. It's not something you lobby for. So could you tell us a little bit about what you think are your key differentiators? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. And of course, when that came really to a surprise to us, uh, that we only were number two because Amazon was number one, <laughs> the most innovative companies in healthcare. No, just kidding. So, um, uh, I think it's a few things. So, so the first, what Cedar really makes different is we, we, this relentless focus on the patient. So, how do we do that? The first is we believe that the the patient needs to have a beautiful and intuitive and transparent user interface. There's no reason to believe that healthcare is different. We always hear that again and again. Yeah, but healthcare is different. Healthcare is different. Um, but the consumer is the same. It's the same consumer that shops on Amazon, that books the trip on Expedia, that watches Netflix. And that exactly on this on-demand technology, what is personalized, it's transparent, it's convenient, and it's, uh, and it's fair and immediate. That's what, uh, what Cedar does as well. So that's what you have everywhere. And it's not the one thing that really differentiates their Cedar. It's, it's running 20 experiments every single day and then optimizing every single piece of that. So that's the first bucket, the, the patient-friendly consumer interface. The second is the personalization. And what means personalization? Becky, when you right now go to a healthcare system, the healthcare systems usually send exactly the same statement to every single patient after 30, 60, 90 days disregarding of whether it's a, it's, it's a large bill, it's a small bill, it's a patient that last time, for example, switched um, to, um, to the Spanish language. It might be um, um, a patient right now that lives in an underserved area or in a very affluent area. All of that is the same. And what CEDAR is doing, we are literally personalizing that. Everybody gets a different bill at a different time through a different channel. And based on how you click through it, we are sending you also different follow-up messages. So similar to what Amazon does to get you to check out your shopping cart, Cedar uses similar algorithms, these multi-arm bandits, in order to get the patient, take them literally virtually by the hand and walk them through the entire process. Um, could, could I ask another question? Yeah, go for it, Becky. Yeah. So, Florian, one of the things that we've seen over the past year is um, is an, an overnight restaffing uh, and going peopleless and and paperless on check-ins and registrations and checkout checkouts and um, and it seems to be working and something that's going to carry on. So, I'm just curious what your product. Uh, expansion is going to be uh, over the next several years to complement what you're doing now in billing. Um, yeah, that's that's of course we've seen that as well, um, Becky. And I'm glad you you asked that question. So our pre-visit, which is basically like a contactless check-in, um, has got a lot of demand. So as I mentioned, we just went live um, a few months ago um, with it, and um, it's working really magic. It's kind of like when you, you might remember when the when, when the airports um, or the airlines you needed to literally go to the travel agency to get your boarding pass next level was you can't print out your boarding pass at home 
or you go to the counter then next level came these kiosks where you just 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 tip in on the flat screens uh, and they print it out and then came the phone and in healthcare of course we are still i would say either at the pad literally the notepad that you get at the office or some of them have somehow these ipads where yeah, a lot of people touch with their with their fingers with the microbes on, which is also not the best way to do it. So Cedar, of course, wants to jump all of these stages and directly go to the um, to the mobile check-in. We've seen very positive results. So um, uh, out of the, the first client that we launched, um, sixty-seven percent of the patients check in before the visit, and out of them, half already scheduled copayment. So it's very interesting. And they have a QR code that is due to contactless check-in. And that, of course, is amazing for the patient because they can really, when they are at the doctor or at the office, they can focus on the medical side and not on all the administrative side. If you can take a picture of the insurance card, we do eligibility check already automatically in real time and tell you how much your co-payment is. So it definitely is, um, is something that helps the patients a lot. One small anecdote, which is actually really interesting, um, we also sometimes, of course, send, send physical bills to those um, uh, to the patients if we don't have the phone number or we don't have the email address. And um, since the the COVID crisis started, we see a huge uptick of patients using the QR code of those bills. So you just hold the QR code um, and then pay with Apple Pay, so it's a one click to pay. Um, because right now the patients are used to that from the restaurants. Speaking of like interesting anecdotes, um, Rich and I were talking about his experience actually as a patient. So Rich, maybe you want to start that and, you know, maybe name a certain hospital. Maybe not. We'll see how. Yeah, how I'm going to, I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep the names confidential, but it's definitely not a, <laughs> definitely not a common spirit or dignity hospital. But I, I actually did have a, a funny story, um, which is probably the same story many people get, but, um, you know, so I was, you know, paying, paying, uh, uh, the bill for my son who goes to, to, you know, see primary care at another provider. And, um, uh, by happen chance, I started to, to ask about my daughter because she needed to schedule another appointment. And they're like, Oh, well, actually she can't be seen because she's in collections. I'm like, what? So it turned out that the, uh, the provider had my name and my son correctly, uh, in our address, but they couldn't, figure out where my daughter's address was, even though I was linked to her same account. So, you know, you think about all the administrative hurdles that are out there that can kind of be solved by um, companies like Florian's, but uh, also like, how do people know, um, you know, they're, they're in these situations, but I guess my question, I thought Becky had some great questions, but my question would be like, so Florian, you have the eyeballs of patients right now. And so patient engagement is so hard it's so hard clinically. It's so hard digitally. So many companies and, and systems and others are trying to, you know, engage patients towards, you know, lots of things, um, health in particular. So, you know, if you're Cedar and you have the, you know, you have the, the eyes, the fingers, the wallet, you know, of, of the patients, but, you know, we as health systems need to steer them to health or maybe, you know, make them, you know, aware of, you know, other types of things that will allow them to get better uh, in their life journey. Do you think Cedar can cross the chasm and be a tool for a different type of patient engagement outside of, you know, paying for bills, but really, you know, other types of things since you've got the, the eyeballs of patients in a unique way? 
Um, yeah, th thanks for for asking the question, Rich. And and I think we absolutely can, and 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 we probably will. So 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 how do we define success? Maybe as a step back, um, we started the company because we saw that the non medical experience is really broken. So this administrative experience, and how do we define um, success? Is first is how many patients do we touch? And then the second is on how much do we improve the experience? So basically the delta pre-seeder versus post-seeder. So um, looking at the how many patients we touch, yes, we are right now probably engaging with around 10 million patients plus or so for, for 10, uh, 10 million visits um, uh, every single year. That's already nice, but it's still something like 0.6% or so of all the visits. So it's still extremely small. And our objective is just literally to scale that. And then the second question is, okay, how can we improve the experience of these patients? And there literally, we probably will go one by one and to see what is the most, the, the most pain point right now that the patients are facing um, and what has the most synergies to what currently CEDAR is doing. So you're totally right. CEDAR what is CEDAR's um, specialty is engaging with the patients. Patients do something through CEDAR. Payments is one of them. Um, on the engagement side, we probably start really on this administrative solving the problems. So like the chat for patients, that is something that the patients really love because it's 24 seven, they don't need to be on hold with something. And um, uh, and, and they of course can, can, can solve their problem there. Um, looking at, do we really want to go into the medical side? Huh? It's an interesting question. I don't think in the immediate, um, future, I actually think to those points that Bill brought up, um, the payer is really, really interesting because you cannot solve the, the, the patient financial experience without somehow payer integration. So I'm really passionate about, about this integration between provider payer and the patient much more than trying right now to get into the medical field where I think there are a lot of other companies doing that and some of the companies are doing that also extremely well. Kevin, um, or yeah. maybe Bill, I know you have a comment. Let's go to Bill and then I'll go to Kevin next. Thank you, Vanka. So, Florian, I was just going to throw my, my two cents in even though you didn't directly ask, but um, I I look at the... So we call patients members, um, and that probably says something right there. I don't know if it's if it's good or bad, but it's the it's a different connotation, of course, from a patient. Um, and just we think of a, a member journey as sort of a continuum, uh, a rather wide continuum. But for purposes of this conversation, there's the the seeking care part, the getting care part, and then the paying for care part. And then a whole lot of other stuff, as I said, which is kind of not really relevant for the conversation. But I would, uh, given how far you, you have advanced, Florian, on the paying for care part, um, I would think about the front end of that patient relationship as a natural next place to go. So if you really, if you could really solve transparency, simplify benefit design, get rid of all of the weird mechanisms that um, actuaries have drummed up over the years, I feel like that's a, a, a natural next place for for somebody to see her to go. And um, from our perspective, it's it's quite messed up uh, and really just, great strides could be made uh, to make it easier for for consumers. 
So this is what it's like. Have you ever been? Yeah, it make, makes total sense, uh, Bill. And, and I can tell you from basically a member perspective um, that, that that just finding the right care, and as my typical example, right, I went to the primary care physician, and how did I find this primary care physician was actually through the insurance website. But still, although this 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 doctor, this primary care physician was recommended basically by the insurance company, I got this out of network bill. That, of course, was a hugely bad experience for me. And in the end, that goes back to um, the uh, the payer, right? Because the member, which is I, I'm not happy with this experience. I somehow think the insurance company misled me because all of a sudden a huge bill for <laughs> for a primary routine visit. And those are things, I think w whatever payer solved this problem will have a huge moat in the tire market. Um, Kevin, I know, um, you know, just from a CFO perspective, would love to hear, I'm sure as you think about this conversation, there's so many opportunities with software and technology can play a role in reducing costs. So just curious in your perspective here. Yeah, so Florian, you know, and we've had this discussion before, but I feel like, uh, you know, healthcare and technology in healthcare, and this is the only place that technology hasn't been able to reduce cost. And, you know, as a CFO, my focus has always been, you know, what, how do I reduce the cost relative to my revenue cycle? I'll have, you know, front end patient registrars afraid to ask for, you know, co-pays up front. And then that ends up getting pushed back to, you know, my billers on the back end and uh, having to reach out to collection agencies and the like. So just, you know, kind of talk about what Cedar is doing to help, you know, reduce the, basically the total cost of care from, the front end all the way all the way through the back um yeah ha happy to talk about that and, and and i think um again so so cedar is very razor sharp focused on the patient and the patient portion of the entire let's say revenue of the healthcare system um i would maybe um um uh still want to talk about the cost but not without talking about also the revenue opportunity because I think the cost is is a factor that 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 overall um, is not the most important in the entire equation. So so what are, what are the benefits? The first is increased revenue through increased collection. Second is literally this um, um, accelerated collection, and then um, the patient experience is important. And then the last is literally the cost factor. So what causes cost? I think it's mainly two things. First is these paper statements. And I mean, in, in your system, Kevin, you're probably spending many hundred thousand dollars just in paper statements. And then the second um, is the very large call center staff because um, so many patients need to have inbound um, uh, support for bills that they don't understand. And you probably will see this a health systems that a, a normal size health system that maybe has two or $3 billion in revenue easily has 100 people in the call center or 200. And out of them, most of them are literally geared towards, towards the billing problems. So if both of that is reduced, that of course is very good on the cost side. But let's maybe go for, to, to the revenue side and how sensitive that is. So in average in the US, I would say a typical healthcare system probably makes around, let's call it, 
5% of their revenue is out of pocket from patients. We know that in average, around 40 to 50% only is collected. So that means basically 5% of the revenue is literally in bad debt. So but what happens right now if you increase the collections by just a relative 10%, so you lift it from 50% to 55%, you're basically adding right now 50 basis points to the bottom line, which is huge. 50% to the bottom line of a healthcare provider that probably makes, I don't know, what is your profit margin? 2% if you're lucky. You're literally adding 25% to the bottom line. So extremely important for the margin. So cost, I think, is one factor, but I think yield is another one that is almost more important than just the cost. Rich, Flirt, I, I think you just saw my, my, my budget presentation to uh, rattle off that 2%. <laughs> Rich, you might have an extra question. If not, we'll go to Carmen. Tom. Yeah, I, uh, I can't help myself since it's an Andreessen um clubhouse but florian uh which crypto um are you accepting currently uh or can we pay by donated nft scott scott might take this one <laughs> exactly i would I, I i would definitely ask my board member scott on that right. we accept we accept all forms of payment that's the answer <laughs> <laughs> awesome well switching gears um from an entrepreneur perspective carm do you want to uh, comment at the conversation here? Yeah, sure. Um, and Florian, great uh, comments and discussion tonight. Uh, I'm Carm Hetris. I'm the CEO of RX Review. And we're, we're maybe the other side of the coin in some respects in that we're trying to bring cost transparency and benefit and coverage information to the provider at the point of ordering. Um, and I've been working on it very hard for uh, eight years now in pharmacy. <clears throat> And we've been able to scale uh, up that, you know, the, the capability of getting these costs uh, and benefit information from a from a pharmacy perspective uh, to the point of care. A lot of our EHR partners are now, uh, and and some of our payer partners are starting to push us to try to go into medical. And the complexity just goes up orders of magnitude, mainly. Um, because, you know, you're, you're, you know, with pharmacy, you have a small number of PBMs you can connect to and get to, to scale, even, even though just three or four of them takes about eight years, but let's, let's put that point aside. Um, but wondering how you're doing it today, um, you know, how do you think about bringing that cost and benefit and coverage data, uh, at, you know, to, to the patient pay equation, from a payer perspective and kind of where you're where you are today and then how do you think about getting that type of medical benefit capability to scale um I, i'm not sure i'm having a good position there on the on the pharmacy side so we are not really engaging much with that they because that's usually bundled uh within so we of course have pharmacy charges but they're usually part of the entire hospital bill um, so we are not interacting directly with that. Yeah, I'm more asking on the medical side, um, like our, you know, labs, imaging, radiology. Um, and are you are you just because you're doing it with the health system, you you can care, kind of just do it for them? 
Um, or do you think about, you know, what happens if it's outside their network and how do you get pricing for that type of event? Yeah, it's, it's, of course, we, we, we are not able to build for entities where we don't have a contract with, right? right. So if you're, a typical, if you're a typical provider, you probably outsource service to, let's just call it 100 different business entities. And right. you, you're totally correct. You say, you say the lab, the imaging center, the uh, pathology, the ER, the anesthesiologist, and so on. That's all different service providers. We actually have a pretty decent footprint, I would say, in these third-party entities. So we have some of the largest uh, radiology providers um, as clients, lab company, um, uh, ER providers with Team Health and Vision. So lots of those we have under contract. We only really can can integrate them if the provider also wants that. Um, but there are, of course, so many providers like, I don't know, Pathology Lab for um, only pediatrics. They might be outsourced, and there's no chance we can ever bill for them. However, we can at least um, engage with the patient and tell them they might get a bill from that lab, but we cannot really bill for them unless we have a business relationship with them. I'm uh, mindful of the time here. I know we just have a couple of minutes, and thank you all, by the way. Thank you, Florian and Scott and the entire group here for staying through and having this awesome discussion. This has been fantastic. Um, we'll go to quick fire, uh, quick fire questions, Tom, and then Matt to wrap it up. Tom, do you want to go off mute? Sorry about that. No problem. Um, thanks so much, Frank. Uh, and, uh, you know, Florian, uh, really, really uh, glad glad to hear from you um and glad you're taking care of so many of my old advisory board uh uh colleagues uh love loving working for you but um you know today i was talking to a, a vc in china where um 40 of the market is self-pay and in particular there's a huge focus right now on oncology drugs and biologics and this is maybe a question for you and Carm. Um, at some point, the PBMs are just failing uh, uh, patients. And, uh, and right now, there are companies in, in China that are really going direct to manufacturer and creating an integrated payment through fulfillment uh, experience. When you think about um, you know, need to fulfillment being the the ideal experience. Um, do you ever see yourself going in that direction, uh, or or uh, maybe maybe doing so uh, in tandem? You you mean you mean the direction China or the direction PBM? Uh, well, specifically for these high cost out of pocket, uh, biologics and, uh, uh, and, and oncology, uh, drugs and China, China as well, if you'd like. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not immediate on our roadmap. Um, so we basically, I mean, um, we are not, uh, really getting into what is, for example, drug pricing, what is the reimbursed, what is not reimbursed. Um, we have a lot of clients in the oncology space, though. Um, so a lot of the largest oncology groups are um, our clients. 
Why is that? Because um, they really care about the patient billing and that, that, that the patients have at least um, as good as an experience as, as a patient in this difficult situation can have. So we definitely go into that, but I don't think we would ever get into really the, um, the drug pricing and, um, and, and, and these, uh, the, the, the PBM space. Can I, I know um, I know we're right at time here, um, but, but I know, Matt, we want to squeeze in a quick question. I will make a quick plug, though, because uh, Scott's book did. I just see, saw the cover art uh, for the Chinese version, Scott. That looks pretty amazing, I should say. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's, it's very, very responsive to the question on this uh, clubhouse. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Doing my, um, this is what we do, Scott. We've got to we got to plug the book here. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, Matt, do you want to have a quick fire rat fire? Yeah, it, it, it'll be quick. And just just to let you know, think Scott and I were research assistants together at Stanford, and I think he wrote. The no book. way. Yeah, no. Aki Yoshikawa was our crazy boss. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick, um, this is the big philosophical one. You can take as long as you like, Florian. In general, most healthcare economists, you know, I know they have no influence on policy and how things actually happen. But they tend to believe that user fees, you know, payments, whether they co-pays payments at the source or whatever don't actually do much to restrict the overall cost of healthcare and don't do much to, 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 change, to change things and tend to be punitive on poor people, which, as we see, the collections you know, in the US, that's clearly true. So uh, big picture question, long term for Scott and Venkat and Julian and everyone else who's put money into you guys. Um, if in, say, four to five years' time, someone comes to their senses and puts in a, at least a multiple-payer system and gets rid of user payments in the U.S., I know it's not that likely, but can you survive as a company if that happens? Yeah, um, I totally agree with you, with your, with your assessment. And I think how it is right now, it's, um, it's not good. And um, you know what? If, 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 if the problem that we are trying to address is solved, magically and cedar gets out of business i'm fine with that because i didn't start the company to have cedar i started the company to get rid of the problem um i totally agree with you that these these out-of-pocket payments are how they're designed today is a complete mess because the poorest people have the highest deductible and the richest people have the lowest deductible it just doesn't make any sense right <laughs> it's, it's just what it is um so um totally agree with you on that um, also, totally agree with you that it's not necessarily reducing the cost of care. Um, I think it depends on literally what it is. Some sort of price consciousness can become interesting if there's transparency. And the transparency is right now the, the, the only missing link. If you have transparency, then also I think a self-pay can make sense. But right now you don't have transparency, so it doesn't really help you. It's a great note to and on Florian, thank you for doing this. Um, Scott, Sam, Tarun, Bill, Rich, um, Karm, Tom, Matt, everyone for joining this conversation. This has been amazing. Thanks, everybody. Um, and we will see you all next Monday. Thanks again, Florian, for doing this with us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Thanks. See you next Monday. Thank you.